China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Pu Xiaoyu, an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Nevada, Reno. Today, we'll be discussing his book, Rebranding China, Contested Status Signaling in the Changing Global Order. Xiaoyu, thanks for joining the podcast. My pleasure. So this is a, a fantastic book, which really helped educate me on the role of status more broadly in international relations, but it also really helped give me additional insights into this very complicated road China is trying to navigate of having a global position and role which matches its increasing comprehensive national power, but at the same time, recognizing many of the development realities that China is still facing, as well as some realpolitik of utilizing both of these roles, developing nation, but also increasingly strong power, depending on uh, what China is trying to achieve. And I wanted to start by quoting, as you do in the beginning of the book, from Deng Xiaoping, who was addressing the UN General Assembly in 1974. So this is two years before the death of Mao Zedong. And certainly, I don't think Deng nor anyone else at the UN General Assembly knew the rise of China that was going to occur over the next four decades. But Deng said, China is not a superpower, nor will it ever seek to be one. If one day China should change its color and turn into a superpower, the people of the world should expose it, oppose it, and work together with the Chinese people to overthrow it. Contrast this with today, where there is... Obviously, a more forceful articulation of China's role in the world by the current General Secretary Xi Jinping. But there's also an assumption by many that China seeks global domination, that China seeks to supplant and replace the United States. And you quote uh, Li Kuan Yew in your book, who was asked about, does China seek this level of, uh, of international influence? And he says, yeah, why shouldn't they? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And before we do, I thought it would be helpful if you could clear some ground by talking about more conceptually the idea of status. And I think I'm interested if you could provide some context about what is status for a country and why does a country seek to articulate and, and manicure or control a status identity? What benefits does that offer a country as, as it navigates the international order? Uh, so think about status in domestic society. At individual level, people care about their status. So its status at individual level means some sort of social ranking order, some ranking order in a society. Think about assistant professor, PhD student, assistant professor, associate, full professor. That's a ranking order. That's a status, different status, right? So internationally, Different nation states, they also care about their ranking order in their international system. It's a superpower, great power, middle power, smaller countries in the system. Nation states care about their, their status, primarily because of two reasons. One is status could get either nation states or political act actor bring different kinds of benefits or instrumental benefits, right? And the status also could have symbolic meanings. So that means satisfy 
people's psychological needs, both individually and and collectively. So people feel good if they have a higher status. So that's universally applied in different societies. So again, in summary, status brings both instrumental benefits and also brings symbolic or psychological benefits, both to individual people, but also to nation states. Some uh, rationales are very similar. So in that in that framing, uh, where status is a positional good. And it seems that there's a it's a scarcity as well. There's only so many people who can occupy the the title superpower for the for the title to be meaningful. Yet not every country seems to adopt a maximizing status. Some countries are fine having a, a brand, so to speak, of a more humble set of ambitions for it, for its role in the world. So why might nations seek to adopt minimizing status? or minimize status as opposed to all nations attempting to achieve a more maximizing status? Yeah, I think the conventional wisdom, both in the uh, soci- sociological literature, psychological literature, and also international relations, often pay attention, either people or nation states want to maximize their status. So actually, many international relations literature highlight the conflict or inevitable conflict between the rising power and established power. This dispute is about the status, who is number one. But we see nation states, sometimes they want to minimize their status aspiration, primarily because of several reasons. Number one is reassurance. You don't want to appear to be threatening to others. So sometimes try to hide or downplay your ambition. That's the first. Second is Higher status sometimes might be good because higher status bring benefits, instrumental benefits, but higher status also bring all the costs, especially responsibilities. So higher status, great power have greater responsibilities. So for a country like China, India, or even Brazil to some degree, sometimes they don't always want to have higher status because higher status bring enormous responsibilities. And the third reason is that some people, sometimes either people or nation states want to show their solidarity, right? Just like think about campaign, a politicians may now have a higher status, but he, they always emphasize their grassroots background. Oh, I'm from workers class, working class family. So similarly, in international society, a country like China, even now become richer, always want to emphasize developing country status, that's a solidarity, just like uh, politicians emphasize working class background, right? It's kind of solidarity. Oh, I'm still a working class and I'm a richer guy, but not, not a distant myself from the, the average folks. So that's kind of solidarity gesture. I wanted to quote you at length from your book, because I think this is really what I'd like to focus most of our conversation on. This is from the introduction. You write, China remains a deeply conflicted rising power with a series of competing international identities. While Xi Jinping at the 19th Party Congress set out a clear development goal for China, that goal has some contradictory or ambiguous elements on China's international role. Domestically, many new actors are now part of a complex foreign policy-making process. Beijing's signals have been increasingly contradictory. China was clearly a status maximizer in the 1990s, but its rapid rise occurred more quickly than anticipated. 
and is unprepared for the new international profile. Because China sits in multiple positions in world politics, China has to manage its conflicted roles. For instance, China has the interests of both a developing and a developed one, and China is both weak and strong one. With multiple identities, China finds it increasingly difficult to define its interests in a coherent way. So I think there's a lot in that paragraph. There's a lot of history in that paragraph. There's a lot about domestic policymaking in that paragraph. There's a lot about Xi Jinping in that paragraph. And so I want to move through it. But I first want to ask you about these competing international identities. What are China's international identities right now? I mean, we've talked about two, which is developing nation, but also rising power. Can you help explain what is the spectrum of, of identities that China is either intentionally or unintentionally upholding right now? China has multiple identities. I mean, some of these identities are contested both domestically and internationally. What are these identities? Number one, China is still a socialist country. So socialist means the political system ruling by Communist Party. People can debate about the in terms of economy, society, how socialist or to some degree is actually capitalist. But socialist legacy is still there. It's a socialist country. Uh, then it's a developing country. It's a rising power. Also, one of the great powers, so one of the P5. So uh, sometimes people uh, overemphasize China as a rising power. But according to Chinese elites, China is already one of the great powers already. And also China has a regional power in East Asia, always emphasize its East Asia identity. Lastly, I think the most controversial is the so-called superpower status or emerging superpower status. I think internationally, more and more commentators, officials, scholars view China as a superpower. In China, only a few sort of scholars, maybe Professor Yan Xuetong and Qinghua, he or a few others, openly identify China as a superpower status. So Chinese officials and diplomats have never used superpower status to describe China itself. I think that's interesting. That's part of the legacy from Deng Xiaoping or maybe even earlier. So superpower status is extremely controversial. To a larger degree in China, it's a politically incorrect term to describe China. So for, for, for several reasons. Is that because there's an... This is essentially the, the done quote we started out the program where it's, it's well understood that even if you assess yourself that China is in a superpower club de facto, that it will invite containment. And so therefore, China needs to continue to minimize its international realities. Or is it because there is a actual debate about whether or not China is, in fact, a superpower. So is it a intentional goal to obfuscate China's position, or is it because people actually fundamentally disagree about what China's position is? I think it's a little bit both. Why superpower status is so contested in China? Number one is, as I mentioned, that's because of the diplomatic political tradition. So sort of like a, the solidarity with the, the other developing countries, that's still part of China's diplomatic tradition or political discourse, officially approved political discourse. So that's kind of rationale. And in the new era, of course, China emerged more assertive, generated many backlashes. I think Chinese leaders 
maybe policy advisors, they understand all these international backlashes. They want to uh, sort of reassure the international community. So I think that's part of the political sort of calculation, political tradition, political correctness, that is still there. So downplay any notion of China as a, a superpower status. That's one. Second, even objectively speaking, so even we try to evaluate China's real status or power, that's a very complicated issue, largely because China is large, so that we see different kind of indicators. So if you see the size of the economy, China is the second largest economy is, is rising, but you see per capita GDP, and in particular domestically, there's huge inequality in, across different regions. And then also people think about superpower status, they think about not just economic power, but also diplomatic influence and also military power projection capabilities. A lot of scholars, even average people, the public, when they talk about China's status, on the one hand, they, they, they might be very proud of China's economic achievement, but also they see a lot of limitations of China's power. So I think within China, there are real debates whether China has a realistic chance to become a superpower in the foreseeable future, given all the limitations. But people are confident the China economy might become larger in the future. I wanted to ask about how China, and I guess broadly any country, but focusing on China, how is status conveyed? Of course, with things like Taoguang Yanghui, this was a TIFA, right? This was, there are sort of official, TIFA is an is a official slogan. So that's one way that you can convey status. We see some of these TIFA, which are continually reinforced in high-level speeches or high-level documents where, you know, peaceful development is still the main topic of our time, you know, being one of the phrases that you still see the party leadership articulating. But it seems to me that there are lots of other ways that status could be conveyed, micro ways as well as macro ways. Can you talk about how status for Beijing has been conveyed and how they do maintenance to ensure that the status received by other countries is the status they are attempting to convey? In my book, I talk about a concept called a status signals or status signaling. Status signaling means information transmission to shape perception about the status beliefs among different actors. So in turn, think about at the individual level, I borrow some ideas from behavior economics, social psychology, think about conspicuous consumption. Why some of the ladies' bags so expensive, right? That's called conspicuous consumption. So people use conspicuous consumption to showcase their status. But also people could donate to charity openly in a very conspicuous way. That's another way to show your status. It's called conspicuous giving. The third way is through talking. So in my book, I talk about spinning, so political rhetoric. So if we think about China, China is doing all this uh, in different cases, like a conspicuous consumption. We can think about, in my book, I talk about Olympic Games, Beijing Olympic Games. That was a conspicuous consumption. And to some degree, I would argue that even aircraft carrier, it's maybe a little bit more controversial, but to some degree, it's a conspicuous consumption to showcase your status. It's not necessarily the most e efficient sort of project to, to maximize your security, but definitely it's a very instrumental, both instrumental and, and symbolic uh, projects 
to showcase great power status. So in terms of conspicuous giving, I'm talking about providing international public goods. In my book, I talk about Asian financial crisis. China was willing to provide more help. That, that's kind of conspicuous giving. So we might maybe see sometimes even in the COVID era, China indicate, oh, they're willing to provide more international public goods. I think that's another way, very similar to Asian financial crisis. The third way is a spinning, is just, as you mentioned, sort of a diplomatic rhetoric. It's this, this is more difficult to convey the information, but talking is not always cheap. Talking sometimes also can constrain political actors' behaviors. Right now seems to be a very acute moment of identity crisis for Beijing. I wanted to get your thoughts on the sustainability of China maintaining multiple identities, which seemed plausible when the stakes were lower and when China's international profile was lower. But if we just look right now across the portfolio of issues where China is directly involved or has exposures, we see that in its more immediate neighborhood, it's pushed through the Hong Kong national security law, it's increased saber rattling over Taiwan, this whole idea of wolf warrior diplomacy, obviously the, the ongoing project of repression in Xinjiang, the signaling coming from demonstrated action is aggressive, it's very illiberal, and it paints a very dark picture of the type of leadership China would demonstrate if it had a greater global role. On the other hand, China is spending a lot of time and effort to curate or manicure an identity as, in the Trump era, really the only major country that is upholding the global order based on trade and interconnectivity. It's saying, you know, decoupling is a crazy strategy. It's decrying or criticizing the kind of Cold War mentality it sees in the United States. This identity schizophrenia here that I see in China ties back to the paragraph I quoted from you. This, this feels like they are trying to spin too many plates and that it will be untenable to juggle these identities. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, are we right for, or am I right for seeing a increased level of schizophrenia as China takes on a larger global role, but, but tries to do several things at the same time? And what is your prognosis for China's path forward in the next, let's say, two to three years? Do you think it will continue to try to spin these plates, or do you see a, a more true identity emerging, a more singular identity that China will try to uphold? This is very important questions regarding these multiple identities, how China handle it, how, how China handle it now or going forward. My own sense that is that probably the multiple identities problem for China will continue to exist in a sense that I don't think China will totally give up its developing country status or developing country identity or some other identities. But China is increasingly viewed as an emerging superpower, assertive rising power. That kind of identity will not go away either. So what I would see is that maybe it's possible instead of thinking about China totally giving up some other identities, maybe China, I would say, maybe increasingly emphasize its great power status, a great power identity. Slightly maybe downplay some of the developing country status. That, that's possible, I think. But they will not give, totally give up the developing country status. So it's, it's, I think 
maybe moving forward, China will be more like a more typical great power in terms of the status, responsibilities, but also superpower probably even more, still more controversial in China. I, I don't see Chinese officials will openly use superpower to, to describe China. So I think that's the more, more likely scenario. But ultimately, I think we see China, I think it will still have a very strange combination of hubris and insecurity. On the one hand, oh, showcase all the, like the emerging power, rising power, great power status. But on the other hand, all many of the policy will continue to be shaped by a, a, a deep sense of insecurity. I think that's kind of strange combination, both confident or overconfidence but also very much insecure. I think that will continue. It's the title of uh, Susan Shirk's great book, Fragile Superpower. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that that framework will still be, up, be, be applied and valid. I, I also think of uh, William Callahan, uh, Bill Callahan had the book, Pess Optimist Nation about China. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, very optimistic, very op confident, but sometimes lack of confidence. How much of China's current status trajectory is about Xi Jinping and how much of this is about a, a, a broader consensus on the role China should play? An analog is we've been talking about U.S. trajectory since 2016 as primarily a Donald Trump phenomenon, the retrenchment from globalization, the rise of mercantilist protectionism the open criticisms of multilateral institutions. And I think there's an expectation that with a change of administrations, America's status shifts again back towards elevation of multilateralism, working with allies, et cetera, et cetera. How much of this is Xi Jinping? And if we look through a post Xi Jinping China, of course, we don't know who the next leader would be, but I just wanna understand how much of this is a deep logic pushing China towards this now articulation of its statuses and how much of this is, is unique to a Xi administration? My understanding is that there are different interpretations. Some people conceptualize China's foreign policy status, international posturing, more assertiveness, most attributed to Xi Jinping's leadership. But I, my own observation is there's much continuity. In a sense, it's a combination. In a sense that, for instance, Xi Jinping's most important political slogan, the Chinese dream or the China dream, talking about rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. As in my book, I describe, it's not that new. It's from, from Sun Yat-sen to Jiang Kai-shek, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping. It's all talking about rejuvenation of the Chinese uh, nation. So they all want to make China great again, right? So the key difference is how great is enough and how to achieve greatness. I think there, Different generation of Chinese leaders might have different uh, different emphasis. Uh, maybe Deng Xiaoping emphasized openness, uh, integration with the West. I, I think Xi Jinping definitely more nationalist compared with Deng Xiaoping. And internally, he has tightening control. So I think Xi Jinping's difference with Deng Xiaoping or even Mao is in terms of different degree, different format. But some of the bigger picture I think that's very similar. I think there's much continuity. Sure. I was going to say, though, it sounds like Xi Jinping's definition of great or rejuvenation 
might differ from previous, from Sun Yat-sen or from Chen Kai-shek or from Deng Xiaoping? Could be. I think, yeah, maybe because given China is stronger on the international stage, maybe he's more ambitious. He Personally, Xi Jinping probably is much more ambitious than some of the earlier leaders. So I think that's that's possible. So in terms of the goal, right, I think that may be true. But I, well, I'm talking about the general trajectory. There are some similarities and continuity there. We've been talking primarily about status as an external facing phenomenon. I, I wanted to ask you about the domestic influence of how a government articulates its status and what domestic considerations may go into this. It seems that more nationalist inclined Chinese citizens may quite like this more assertive, central, dare I say, expansionist view. You know, at the 19th Party Congress, when Xi Jinping said that the new era, China will be moving closer to the center stage and making greater contributions to mankind, that would envision China playing a role that I would think for nationalists would be welcomed and supported. So can you talk about when leaders are thinking about status, I understand the international implications of it, but what are the domestic considerations for them, both in terms of causal, why might they take into account domestic constituencies when framing, and also effect or impact? Does it get to a point where you've now boxed yourself into a corner as a leader because you've articulated a vision one way or the other that kind of boxes or, or frames you in because that's what the population thinks you should do? I think uh, domestically, uh, status signaling plays, uh, plays an important role in political mobilization and the legitimacy. So in a sense that this is maybe not just China, even the United States. Every new leader want to have a new slogan. So part of the slogan about what kind of role your nation want to play on the global stage. I think that's to some degree, not just China, but the U.S., other countries. So there's some similarities there. So that's because like Xi Jinping, his Chinese dream slogan, China wants to play a more important role on the global stage. That's part of his domestic mobilization strategy to consolidate his power base and also for domestic legitimacy. So I think there's some continuity there. Uh, even it's a new slogan, but essentially it's a pretty nationalist slogan in the sense that want to strengthen China's international status, power and prestige internationally. But the real or important purpose is to consolidate Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping's domestic prestige and authority. So I think that's very important domestic a political motivation. But on the other hand, I want to say for a lot of Chinese elites, policymakers, policy advisors, even the average citizens, they are pretty ambivalent about some ambitious international goals. On the one hand, you might say, oh, they, are, they, should, they, should, they might feel very proud about those kind of achievements. But a lot of scholars and international researchers, they are also worried about all the international backlashes. So they worry about if China's international posturing is too assertive, that generated all kinds of troubles in different parts of the world. Because higher status typically are more risky. Higher status generated more backlashes. And also equally important, higher status have more responsibilities, more costly. Sometimes you may see some of the nationalist, Chinese nationalist internet users 
And on day one, they are very cheerful about oh China's international achievement. But on the other day, they complain about oh why we provide all these package to Africa, Latin America countries? Why they should not prioritize domestic citizens' education, welfare, social programs? So they they are very ambivalent about this. I think it's interesting a comparison to one of the many. Criticisms of U.S. overseas nation-building exercises, like in in Afghanistan and Iraq, was why are we spending? Forget you know not only the life lost, but why are we spending tens of billions of dollars building roads in Afghanistan when we have potholes here in the United States? Yeah, there's some similarities there. I would say some some sort of so the superpowers have super responsibilities. What are the costs? So I think. The United States has decades of experience of doing this, but in China, I think this is an emerging topic. What's the cost if China wants to become a global power? I wanted to spend just the last few minutes talking about costs and、um, anticipated and unanticipated costs. As a as a prominent and leading Chinese scholar here in the United States, as we've seen this shift here in the U.S. of more aggressive rhetoric about combating China's rise, some even calling for containing. I think it was quite clear in Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's speech that he was articulating a strategy or a an attitude of some form of regime change. It was unclear, but I think certainly Beijing could have read into that. And one of the topics which is not well discussed enough is implications and repercussions for Chinese Americans, Chinese citizens, and individuals of Asian descent here in the United States. So I wanted to get your own perspective on what impact this new open hostility between the United States and China is having for your scholarship and for you, because this will be one of the important costs which we need to begin addressing immediately. So how are you viewing and how are you feeling about the way that the relationship is going? I think、um, in the short term,、uh, I'm not a very optimistic about the bilateral relationship, especially the political relationship. I think the situation might get worse before、uh, it gets better. But、uh, I think in the long term, I'm still cautiously optimistic about the people pe- to people connections in the long term. I think deep in both societies. Both American societies and Chinese society are very resilient、uh, society, but in the short term, I think all the political troubles and the political rhetoric. So I think、uh, that's very unfortunate. I think on both sides, I would say, largely domestic politics driven. I don't think I mean U.S. China relations, the two sort of、uh, great powers, one superpower, the other emerging powers. I think. Even competitions are not always a zero-sum game. Don't have to be a zero-sum game. Competitions. So there are a lot of issues. U.S. China could cooperate. They could compete. But even competitions don't have to be a zero-sum game. A lot of short-term political troubles are domestic politics driven. So I think we understand for different reasons. America side, Chinese side. I think. We need to think about the long term. Is how the relationship get to not get to the old pattern. Old pattern will not be valid. I mean, I I don't think that will be valid. But I think sort of like competitions, but but manage competition, but also re- preserve necessary、uh, cooperation. And also, I think in terms of social economic ties, I think a lot of people might suffer in in the process of even partial decoupling. 
I think that's very unfortunate. But I think complete decoupling will be bad for both sides. We should avoid the complete decoupling. So how to think about sort of resetting, repositioning of the relationship. In what way both countries to get along with each other coexist, compete, sure, but not damage entirely the relationship. I think both sides need some sort of rethinking. Personally, I don't worry too much in a sense that I think as a scholars, we do our professional job. I think in the United States, I think, I think I can still enjoy much freedom of expression in my classroom. I teach whatever I want to teach. So President Trump, don't impact my syllabus. Personally, I don't worry too much, but I do worry about sort of the short term sort of political relationship. The bad political relationship impact the social economic ties between the two countries. This is not my point. I didn't think of this, but it was made in a private workshop, so I can't repeat who said it, but it's a great point. So I'm going to kind of steal it. Someone said, as we think about ways to mitigate tensions between the two countries, what we're missing right now is, a, is an articulation of what underpins the relationship. We had a underpinning for the better part of the reform and opening period, right? We we knew what the rationale for the relationship was, even if that didn't mean there was always agreement. The rationale for the relationship is is dead. It's gone, right? There's a fundamental dissatisfaction with the rationale, I would say, on both sides of the Pacific. I don't think Beijing was happy with where the relationship was. And certainly we know that not only the Trump administration, obviously this, this began before the Trump administration, even if the volume got turned up, but uh, there's a widespread consensus that the, the old engagement model is broken. And so I think as a first step, we've got to begin articulating clearly what is the motivation for the relationship now? Um, it used to be based on economic enrichment and integration, right? Nope, but, but that's not a politically tenable articulation or, or framework now. And so it seems to me that the new framework or articulation has to be based on the realities in both countries, which is there are national security implications of technological integration. We thought technology was this liberating tool. We now know that it has profound security implications. We also need to articulate a vision which incorporates the long-term rule of Xi Jinping, right? So we've got to take the Communist Party as it is, and that means building a framework which can incorporate living with the CCP, even when there's the Xi administration, Xinjiang, Hong Kong national security law. We can't avoid those things. And I think no one has come up with a good all-encompassing rationale that says, look, you've got two options. Either regime change is your strategy, or it's some flavor of coexistence and mitigation. And I think most of us are in the second camp. We're not calling for regime change. But that second camp of mitigation is so broad that we've really got to find a more coherent framework for it. And not to rattle on here too long, but I think that's such a necessary first task. Yeah, I think uh, the, the relationship needs some sort of big rethinking, re sort of brainstorming some of the like a bigger conceptual framework. So sort of re a reset. It can't be how do we get back on the old track? I think that's what a lot of people say is, look, how do we how do we get through Trump and get back onto the onto the track? And I, I think the track is broken. I don't think the old track is. Yeah, it's not. A, I think the, the old track is not the correct way. I think it's it's 
I mean, I think it, think about it as some sort of new track, sort of resetting. It's it, it's different from current, but also different from four or five decades ago. So some new rationale, as you said, underpins. So some new sort of foundations, the relationship, re more realistic goal for both sides, for both societies. So what's what some of the realistic goal? Now it's like it did a bit messy. Messy. I think it, we are in a transition period. I think both domestic politics in both countries and also the relationship. We 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 don't know yet when the transition sort of period might end. I think next a few months, a few years, maybe even longer time, we see a huge uncertainty period in the relationship. It's a resetting, repositioning period in this relationship. A lot of new rethinking, not 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 the old thinking. I think we need some sort of rethinking. Rethinking does not mean return back to the old approach. The old approach won't work. We in the United States are extraordinarily lucky that we have individuals like you who are engaged in helping us to frame and and think through these incredibly difficult and important issues. So I I'm, couldn't recommend more highly your work and especially rebranding China for anyone who is trying to make sense of where China's going and how China will navigate these increasingly complex geopolitical realities. And also, I think this is an important book and an important topic for those of us over here in the United States who need to accurately interpret status signaling that Beijing is sending. If we're misinterpreting intentionally or unintentionally, of course, that's going to make things much worse. So uh, Xiaoyu, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for, for all your work and having seen you navigate many difficult conversations on US-China relations on email lists and offline. I have to say personally that I just find your your spirit and temperament and attitude so necessary and uh, want to thank you and, and hope you continue up with as much vigor and enthusiasm as, as you have been. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog.